On today's episode, we're going to be learning the basics of landing and recovering cardiac surgery patients. What's up, guys? This is Sean from the Nurse Dose podcast, owner of nursedose.org. And today we're going to have a very special episode. And it's something that people have been asking for for a little while. And this is going to be the basics of landing and recovering cardiac surgery patients. Now, before we get to that, I uh, just wanted to ask you all for a favor. If you enjoy this podcast and everything that comes with it, I would really appreciate it if you followed me on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on. Um, go ahead and follow me on TikTok as well. I have a lot of great content there. And if you would like to uh, go ahead and check out my Etsy page. I've got uh, a couple things on there. You just search nurse dose um, and the store should come up. But anyways, um, back to the topic for today. Um, the reason I say landing cardiac surgery patients is a lot of them, the, the basics of landing, whether it be a valve replacement, valve repair, cabbage, anything that involves opening the sternum and working on the heart kind of involves the same kind of landing and recovering procedure. Now in the long term, there are different considerations to take for each one. Um, you'll be giving different medications for each one, but in the first 12 hours, a lot of the stuff is the same, no matter what kind of cardiac surgery you're dealing with. Now the initial landing of a cardiac surgery patient is going to be kind of the same as a lot of surgeries that you see. So if you are used to landing traumas um, and other kind of minimally intensive surgeries, it's going to be the same kind of procedure. So the first step is you're going to be getting report from the nurse in the operating room. Um, and they usually don't have too much information to give you, too much helpful information. They can tell you what medications the patient's on. Um, what lines they have, but I've been in situations where the the uh, nurse in the OR doesn't know if the patient has a swan, um, doesn't know pump time, you know, things that they probably should know, but um, are not able to um, relay at that time for whatever reason. Um, I know the OR is really busy and sometimes nurses come in and out and they don't get full report from the person that they are um, relieving. So um, that is one thing. So you'll get report from them initially, and that's kind of how you know the timing of when the patient's going to come up. And then the next report you're going to get is from the anesthesia provider. Hopefully you get this report. Um, there's no reason why you shouldn't. Anesthesia should be following the patient into the room um, just to monitor them. And so with that said, this report usually takes place at the bedside, and um, you'll get a couple of different things from them. It's kind of the same as the OR nurses. There's not like a lot of super helpful information, but some things that I like to get from them are the type of sedation given, uh, the last time that the sedation was given, if they were paralyzed, how much paralytic was given, um, and then any vasopressors that were given in the last administered time. Um, I know there's a meme about anesthesia providers uh, pushing some um, 
vasopressors um, on their way up to the floor just to um, make the patient look like they have a good blood pressure and then all of a sudden your blood pressure tanks and then now it's your problem. Um, so I like to get that and report as well just so I can kind of um, estimate if I'm going to need any vasopressors or um, anything like that. Um, they can usually give you any crystalloids given, any um, albumin or blood products given. Um, they'll probably give you estimated blood loss, but we all know that that's very estimated and never quite adequate to what it actually is. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, and then the final report that you should get is from the surgeon or the resident performing the surgery. Um, and I get a lot of useful information from this. This is your one time to talk to the surgeon before they leave. And um, you don't want to end up calling them, asking them some of this information, which you could have gotten at the bedside. Um, so the first thing that I ask is what CVP is optimal for this patient? And in a lot of cardiac surgeries, what they will do is they will actually take a syringe of saline. Like it's almost like a Tumi syringe. And they will slowly pump in um, fluid directly into the heart and monitor the CVP as they do this. Um, as they do this, they see what CVP the heart actually responds best to. And then they will tell you to kind of maintain that CVP um, during recovery. And um, this is something that you kind of have to think critically about because when they're doing this, the chest is usually open. So you have to think, you know, if the chest is closed, there's going to be more intrathoracic pressure. So the CVP might need to be a little bit higher or it might need to be a little bit lower, just depending um, on the situation. So remember that, but you can get a good range. So whatever the surgeon tells you, you can probably be within four um, points. So two below or two higher. And that should be a safe uh, bet for you on that. Uh, another thing I ask is, are there any concerns with this patient? Any other medical history that I need to know of that might impact my care for this patient later on? Uh, were there any complications during surgery? Was the patient on pump um, for longer than expected, which could least lead to a vasodilatory shock? And um, anything like that, any kind of weird stuff that happens, they'll usually tell you. Um, just because it is something that usually doesn't happen and they will present that information to you. Um, but then the next thing I ask is kind of what their plan is for recovery. Um, and if they plan on using uh, vasopressors or vasodilators, just depending on the patient's um, vital signs at the time, and if they do plan on using vasopressors, what their first med of choice would be, and then second and third. Um, I've had some surgeons say that they want epi first and then levo. I've had people say levo first. I've had people say vaso first. So it's kind of all over the place. And then a lot of the times they'll come up with a milrinone drip or dobutamine, just kind of depending. And you want to ask if that is titratable or if you just leave it alone and um, make sure you follow that and present it to the nurse coming on the next shift because milrinone is something that usually the surgeons will titrate and we don't touch them at all and it's usually a very slow titration at that so um, you don't want to touch that 
And then finally, I'm going to ask the surgeons what vital signs parameters they want me to maintain overnight. Um, do they just want a map of 60 and don't care about the rest? Do they want me to go off PA pressures if there's a swan? Um, just all this stuff, it kind of varies patient to patient. Um, you can usually um, assume that you're going to maintain normal vital signs. Uh, some surgeries will require you to maintain a lower map. Uh, some will require you to maintain a higher. So you just kind of have to go case by case with that. So that's why it is very important to ask your surgeon before they leave what kind of vital signs they are expecting you to keep. And while this is all happening, you should have your coworkers in the room with you helping you land the patient. Um, you should not be helping set up everything while getting these um, reports from the different providers because um, it's really easy to miss something that they say and then it's gone. So the person getting report should be standing right next to the surgeon, um, getting the information and overseeing the landing of the patient. So ideally all this stuff is happening simultaneously, but we are a profession that works off being short staffed. So in order of hooking up the monitor, I have my own set of priorities that I, um, follow. And I think this is something that every place should follow. And it's not a huge deal per se, especially if you have a lot of people doing this at the same time and hooking up each individual piece at the same time. But um, if you only have one or two other people helping you land this patient, you will want them to prioritize um, this uh, list. So the first thing that I hook up, no matter what, is the A-line. And so the A-line gives us a couple of different pieces of information that helps us assess the patient right when they get there. So an arterial line can show us if the patient has a perfusing rhythm. Um, so if there's any kind of beat at all, if there's any kind of oscillation of the um, pressure in the blood, um, it shows that the patient does have some sort of perfusing rhythm um, and you do not need an EKG to see that. You know, it, the patient could have the most messed up EKG, but as long as you're getting that oscillation on the A-line and it shows a blood pressure, then you know the heart is beating and you are perfusing. Um, and then of course it shows your blood pressure as well, which is usually one of the main issues you have coming straight out of surgery. The next piece of equipment that I hook up is the um, O2 sat. And with that, O2 sat is the next, uh, once you know that you have a perfusing rhythm and a good blood pressure, you wanna know if your O2 sat is acceptable. Um, if it is not, then you have anesthesia there uh, to help you um, troubleshoot why sats are low. Um, but the one thing that I see, and it is last on my list, is I see people race to put on the EKG leads first. And this really shows us nothing, um, the EKG. So yes, people are saying, well, it shows you if you have a rhythm, it shows you what kind of rhythm you have. But um, in my eyes, any rhythm, I mean, a, a rhythm could be PEA. And um, you wouldn't know it if you don't have your blood pressure hooked up or your O2 sat hooked up. You can even see if it's a perfusing rhythm on your O2 sat. So that's why I prioritize the A-line and then the O2 sat before the EKG. Now, like I said, you can be doing all these at the same time if you have enough people in the room, but 
the first thing that I have anybody grab while we're waiting in the room is the A-line to make sure that is set up. And then you just plug it in and you're good to go. You know if you have a blood pressure and you know if you have a perfusing rhythm. So uh, just to go over that again, A-line first, O2 sat second, EKG um, third. And then um, just depending if you have a swan or anything, that's kind of ancillary and you can do that after the EKG. Um, it's not a huge deal to get that done um, as soon as possible. So next, once the patient is stable and the surgeon is happy with the vital signs and has left, um, you are going to start warming the patient up. The patient gets very cold in the OR for several different reasons. Uh, one being the um, bypass pump will cool down the blood and then they also use a slush in the um, cavity of the chest to um, slow down the heart and cause um, uh, the heart to actually stop along with the um, potassium um, solution as well. So uh, you will be warming up the patient right when they get there. Uh, you don't want to do it too fast and you don't want to do it too slow. There's kind of like an easy middle there that you want to follow. Um, going too fast, you can get some hemodynamic issues and going too slow. You could have some bradyarrhythmias and things like that. But you'll want to wait to capture an official 12 lead EKG until the patient is normal thermic because you could have all sorts of issues when they are hypothermic whenever they first come out. Um, like QT interval being prolonged and like I said, Brady, Brady arrhythmias as well. Um, and with that being said, once you get to that normal thermia uh, point, you'll want to configure your monitor as well. Um, you want to make sure that your ST elevation monitor is on and that the alarm is on as well. The um, monitors that I use actually have um, monitoring of the ST um, segment and you can go back and see what the baseline looks like compared to what it currently is. Um, but you do have to turn it on and a lot of people forget to turn it on when the patient first comes up. And then you'll also want to turn on your QT interval uh, monitoring as well uh, because there are some different medications that we give that can prolong the QT interval. And if that happens, you run the risk of um, torsades. So you want to be sure that you are following that. Um, and also a lot of cardiac surgery patients do have a um, naturally prolonged QT interval. So. Um, it is a good idea to monitor that monitor if there's a trend of it going up, if it's going down, and um, you will go from there. And now for any cardiac surgery patient, you're going to have a lot of insensible fluid loss. And insensible fluid loss is when you lose fluid um, from ways that don't include like bleeding, um, you know, peeing, anything like that. It's basically just evaporates out of the body. Um, and this happens at a very high rate whenever the chest cavity is open because all that's, it, it's like almost mucous membranes that are exposed to the air and will cause evaporation to happen. Um, so I forget what the actual number is. I've heard the residents uh, quiz their interns on this many times, and it's something like, and, and I'm just pulling this out of thin air, it's something like 750 to a liter an hour that a patient loses in insensible fluid loss. 
Um, so you can kind of imagine how much you need to give the patient in order to catch up to um, their normal uh, fluid status after surgery. Um, so what a lot of uh, surgeons will do is um, require a lot of fluid replacement right after surgery. Um, and the specific fluids that are given and how much kind of depends on the surgeon and the care team. But usually it's some combination of crystalloids like NS and then um, colloids like albumin. Um, so a lot of this will also help the third spacing that um, happens due to the shock that's associated with the bypass pump. Um, your blood does not like to be touching plastic or metal or whatever it touches in that pump and leads to a lot of third spacing. So that's why there's that albumin there uh, to kind of pull the fluids back into the vasculature. Um, and like I said, multiple liters of fluid are usually given to these patients within the shift after landing. Um, there are times where I've been two to three liters positive on a patient uh, the next morning after landing the patient at the beginning of my shift. Um, and just to note, you are too far behind your fluid replacement if you wait for the blood pressure to drop before giving any fluid. Um, once your blood pressure starts to drop, you're already past the compensation point and giving fluid is not going to help at that point. So you're probably going to have to uh, rely on some kind of vasopressor in order to catch up your fluid um, balance at the same time. Um, so and then, like I was saying, it depends on the surgeon if they want to give the albumin first, if they want to give albumin at all, uh, if they want to give the crystalloid first. And that's just another thing that you're going to have to get in report um, on the plan. And this is basically the recovery plan. This is the bread and butter of recovering cardiac surgery patients is fluid replacement because they come out like beef jerky. They are so dry. And when talking about fluid replacement, you kind of have to talk about chest tubes and what it means for these cardiac surgery patients. Um, a lot of these patients, especially cabbage patients, will have usually around two chest tubes, but it's not uncommon for some to have as little as one and some to have as much as four. Um, it is very important to check these on a routine basis. I do it at least hourly and um, you want to note the quality of the output, the quantity of the output, and if there are any clots that are developing at the um, site of penetration. Um, I've had some people that neglect that last part and the patient will develop a clot um, at the base, like right where it enters the patient. And what happens then is the blood cannot come out through the chest tube and it can lead to tamponade. Um, so it is very important that you check that and you ask the surgeon what they would like to do um, in order to keep clots from developing there. Um, milking is not something that should be done or stripping the or stripping the, um, the tubing should not be done. It causes a huge amount of negative pressure um, that could lead to some pretty bad complications because um, you have to think these tubes are sitting in the chest cavity um, pretty close to the heart. So you don't want a huge amount of uh, negative pressure in that area. 
Um, so a regular chest tube will pull negative 20. Um, but if you start milking, it can get all the way up to negative 300. Um, so you can see how much of a pressure difference that is from what we normally maintain to what it can lead to. Um, a note about the quality of the output you want to see, is it serosanguinous or is it frank blood? And depending on what it is, the amount coming out, uh, the concern for the amount is going to change. If it's frank blood, you're going to be concerned with a smaller amount than if it was serosanguinous. Um, this is another thing that's going to be surgeon preference on what they will allow. Um, but a good rule of thumb is if it stays greater than 100 milliliters out per hour, um, you will want to notify your surgeon. And I just like to think about it as if it's frank blood and you're getting, let's say you get 300 out, that's close to a unit of blood. So you kind of have to put it in that perspective to kind of give yourself some insight on if this is a big deal or not. Now, of course, you're going to be following labs, you're going to be following CBCs and chemistries. So if anything correlates with the blood output, uh, you can then use that as a jumping off point to decide is this something that uh, warrants a call to the surgeon or not. Um, it's going to be different for every patient, like I said, and that's kind of the theme for cardiac surgery is it's different for every patient, but the process is pretty much the same. So let's talk about what happens if you do get a clot in that chest tube line. Um, what needs to happen? And this is something where a doctor needs to get involved. And a lot of the times it was a resident that did this um, at my hospital. And it involves a trach suction kit and a, um, a suction canister. And basically what will happen is the chest tube is disconnected from the um chest tube uh, in, in the insertion point into the body and a sterile um, trach suction kit is used um, in sterile fashion to insert into the uh, chest tube portion that is in the body and is used to suck up that clot and kind of free it as much as possible. Um, you don't want to get to that point because it does introduce a risk of infection um, you're disconnecting the um, closed line and um, you don't want to be really sticking anything up there into the chest cavity that's just it's not a recipe for good stuff to happen um, so that is why it's very important to maintain that uh, chest tube and make sure it is open at all times um, a lot of the times these will be to um, wall suction at least for the first 24 hours, it's another thing where it is surgeon preference, but expect to hook that up to the wall suction um, and make sure it's working and you're getting your normal signs of a chest tube working. You don't want a lot of titling and you don't want um, bubbles, which could show a leak. Um, but that's, you know, that's another whole thing on chest tubes, so we won't get too much into that. And finally, we'll just talk about some ancillary things that come with um, some specific cardiac surgery um, procedures. Um, a lot of places are actually getting away from Swan-Gans catheters now, um, at least here where I am. Um, they're kind of going back to the old school way of recovering patients just from 
um, assessment um, and blood pressure only. So um, you might not have a swan, but if you do, um, you'll just get the parameters that the surgeon wants to keep the PA pressures in and uh, keep them within that um, set range. Um, You'll also might be doing wedges as well. Uh, it's not as common for cardiac surgery patients. It's more for a cardiology thing, um, but it, it's not unheard of, uh, especially to um, see what your fluid status is uh, via that wedge. Another thing that is really popular with valve repairs is coming out with a pacemaker. And uh, this is because, especially with certain valve um, repairs or replacements, it can cause a disruption of the electrical pathways of the heart and could lead to a um, bradyarrhythmia or even a systole if it gets bad enough. And this is due to the inflammation that happens after the repair or replacement. Um, a lot of cabbages come out with this as well, especially if there were some electri uh, electrical problems before surgery and it's kind of um, propagated to the point where you need a uh, pacemaker. Honestly, I feel like everyone should have a pacemaker, but those pacing wires can lead to some complications down the road whenever they take them out. There's a um, pretty significant chance of bleeding afterwards, at least uh, significant enough to where you need to be careful with them. So that's why they tend to not place pacemakers in every single cardiac surgery patient. Um, but it is something to be aware of. And with this, um, a lot of surgeons just use them as backup and the, they'll do something that is very annoying to me that I hate and they will just unplug the leads and say, oh, plug it in if you need it, but I don't want them plugged in because it might interfere with the, the electrical, uh, the natural electrical pathways of the heart. And you know, you kind of want to tell them like, that's not how it works, but, um, you know, you have to do what they say. So um, a lot of them will leave them unplugged, especially the older surgeons, um, to leave them unplugged and they don't want you to plug them in. Um, but like I said, that's not every surgeon. That's just, you know, what some preference is. But you want to, um, in your report, you want to make sure you get um, what settings they want, like the rates um, and what the amperage is that they have them set at. Uh, power level and then um, make sure you adhere to that um, some units will also have a uh, minimum threshold that they will do every 12 hours and uh, this involves um, turning the pacemaker basically off for a second um, to see what the underlying rhythm is if you have anything that's close to asystole anything super bradycardic I just would skip it at that point um, but like I said, follow your hospital's policy, but um, you don't want to be messing around with the pacemaker too much, especially when the patient is reliant on it. But that is pretty much the basics of landing a cardiac surgery patient. And this was a very basic overview of how things go. And this is really meant for people who have had no exposure to landing a cardiac surgery patient um, and kind of wanted to know what it looks like. Um, I didn't go over medications because, like I've said probably 
20 or 30 times in this podcast, everything depends on surgeon preference and it's a case by case basis. I've had surgeons that do not want vasopressors at all. And I've had surgeons that prefer you start on epi and you stay on epi until um, certain values are met. So it is very up in the air. There's no way you can just make a definitive this is what you do. This is the medication you give. This is the medication you give with this. This is the medication you give with this because it's different every single time. And that's kind of what makes it fun um, and interesting. So um, you're always learning something. There's always a different population um, that you are uh, treating and um, there's always stuff to learn. But um, it's something that also requires a lot of um, self-learning and self-evaluation. So um, if you're interested in cardiac surgery nursing and you are not currently in a unit like that, I hope that this has helped you uh, kind of understand what goes into landing patients like this. And if you are not and you're in some kind of like trauma or um, medical ICU, maybe this will help you with just landing normal surgical patients um, because a lot of the same values pull over from there as well. Um, but yeah, thanks guys for all the support. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, like I said in the beginning, if you enjoyed this podcast, um, please consider giving me a follow on whatever you listen to this podcast on. Um, there will be more podcast episodes coming out soon, probably not as in-depth as this one. Um, but yeah, uh, go ahead and go check out my TikTok at Nurse Dose. Uh, find me on Instagram at Nurse Dose Official and um, look up my Etsy page. I got some really cool pins that I'm selling there, I'm starting to design some shirts and then um, coming out with some guides that you can download for really cheap. Um, so if anything like that piques your interest, uh, go ahead and ho- head over there. But until then, I will see y'all later. Bye.